This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Is monkeypox a sexually transmitted disease? The truth and the tales. Imagine living with painful lumps that congregate in the folds of your skin, under your armpits, and groin area. Now imagine you've seen up to 10 doctors over several years and they have no idea what you're living with. There's a good chance it's HS and we talk about it tonight. And can someone steal your womanhood? I don't think so. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Now, Maureen's Health Headline. Typically at this time, Dr. Jason Kindrichuk joins me on the program, but he's not with us this evening, but he will be with us next e- next week. And um, although you might it might lead you to think that the pandemic is over, no longer, no more coronavirus, that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, we are not going to talk about it tonight, even though I thought that... Put- Perhaps I'd had it this week, but uh, I didn't end up having COVID. I had bronchitis instead. I'd actually been exposed to bronchitis, and and I was fairly confident that I didn't have COVID because I had not been exposed to COVID. And I am one of those weirdo mask-wearing types, Um, and I typically don't eat indoors in restaurants and haven't been to an indoor wedding yet this year, although I have a wedding coming up soon, and uh, not mine, um, but I don't think it's going to be indoors. I'm hoping it's not. I'm I'm pretty sure the venue seems like all of the festivities will be outdoors. It's over two or three days. Anyway, I'll let you know. But the bronchitis hit me pretty bad, um, And uh, but here I am back at it. So if you notice a bit of a change in my voice, uh, you know why. Anyway, so I, I, it's not something I like to be down for the count, but I was down for the count this week, um, but still able to manage to work virtually. We're, we're blessed to have that um, these days. And so that was quite beneficial for me, although I probably wasn't nearly as productive as I usually am. And then, you know, when you have to get on those virtual meetings and the total complete fake look of trying to look like you're healthy, <laughs> that you're okay. Um, you know, the big giant sunglasses, the patients don't notice they're in such distress. No, I'm kidding. Um, anyway, tough week, tough week, but I'm back. Here I am, but still not exposing myself to other people because nobody wants this either. And I really don't know, although I'm on antibiotics for two days now, I don't know if I'm still infectious or not. It's hard to tell. Anyway, but I'm thankful that I am feeling better. But tonight I thought we'd talk about something a little bit different, but something people are talking about lately. And as we head into a month of gay pride celebrations, some experts believe that health officials should be making bolder interventions to raise awareness of monkeypox. You've probably heard about monkeypox. You're probably not so sure about it. In fact, I had a a friend call and say uh, that they had a rash on the back of their elbows and their neck. And the first thing they thought they had was monkeypox, but that was not what it turned out to be. And um, it turned out to be a heat rash. And, um, but, you know, people are getting scared, but there there haven't been that many cases in, in the world. And I think about 77 in Canada so far, most of them in Quebec but there haven't been that many in the world. So statistically speaking, you're probably not going to have uh, monkeypox if you have a rash. It's common things happen commonly. And, and so far, monkeypox is uncommon. But the reason that health officials or, or some experts feel health officials should be making bolder uh, awareness campaigns or raising more awareness of the monkeypox uh, among men who have sex with men, because we're seeing a disproportionate number of men who have sex with men who have um, contracted monkeypox. So as I said, Canada has about 77 confirmed cases of monkeypox. And, you know, it is frightening for some people. And it can spread when there's close contact with the lesions of someone who's infected. And, and so people will have a rash or lesions. But I, I thought it was interesting to note that 
um, there are possible links of, you know, where did this come from? Possible links between a recent pride event in the Canary Islands where there were 80,000 people and also some cases at a Madrid sauna. So just wanted to educate you a little bit about monkeypox uh, tonight. Um, and, and although some recent monkeypox cases have been identified in homosexual and bisexual men and men who have sex with men, there is the fear that discriminatory language would falsely associate monkeypox within the LGBTQIS community. But um, other experts actually fear that gay men are at increased risk of monkeypox unless interventions are prioritized for them, such as public awareness campaigns, vaccines, and also testings. And so it's a, it's a tough one because you don't want to discriminate against people, yet you do want to raise awareness that there have been a higher number of monkeypox cases amongst gay and bisexual men. But it's very critical, very, very important to note that all groups, no matter who you are, anybody is potentially susceptible to this virus. Anyone can get infected and spread the virus if they come into close contact with somebody else, including intimate sexual contact with an infected person or their contaminated objects. Remember that about COVID. Um, well, it seems to be, we thought that initially and, and, um, and then it wasn't as, as big of a deal um, as other modes of transmission, but contaminated objects, especially sexual objects as well, um, they can actually, you can actually contract monkeypox through sexual objects. So I thought I would review the symptoms of monkeypox so that um, kind of allay your fears. But, um, you know, people can get pretty sick with monkeypox. But the symptoms of monkeypox include unexplained rashes, hence my friend who called in a panic with a bit of rash behind his neck and behind his elbows or on his elbows. Um, but um, unexplained rashes, it's more of a constellation of symptoms, monkeypox. So it's um, headache, fever, as I mentioned several times, the unexplained rashes, muscle and body aches, and swollen lymph nodes, and that's according to the World Health Organization. So as I said, monkeypox can spread when there's close contact with the lesions of someone who is infected, and it looks like sexual contact has now amplified that transmission. So the virus can enter the body in a number of ways. It can enter through broken skin, respiratory droplets, mucous membranes like the eyes, nose, and mouth, a bite or a scratch from an infected animal, contact with bodily fluids, and contaminated clothing or linens. I do have one text here. I'm not exactly sure what the person is saying, but said, uh, I guess it's from Ron, had chronic B6-11. You got it at 12? It's a perm thing, not the end of the world. Just saying. I actually don't even really know if I have bronchitis. You know how they, do, they don't even know what, what you have, but you have a fever. I knew it wasn't COVID because I didn't have the fatigue. I didn't have the headache that seems to go along with this variant. I didn't have the muscle aches. Um, I didn't have the runny nose. Just had the chest congestion and the expiratory wheeze um, and uh, a fever. And so the antibiotics certainly helped with the fever that lasted about four or five days. Anyway, thank goodness for antibiotics and other therapies for some of these viruses. Uh, we're talking about monkeypox virus. And, um, you know, the prognosis for monkeypox depends on many things like the previous vaccination status of somebody, somebody's health status, whether or not they have concurrent illnesses or comorbidities. Uh, but there are certain people who need to be considered for treatment for monkeypox. And those are people who have severe disease. And those people that had a hemorrhagic or bleeding disease, for example, or confluent lesions, when the lesions all come together, sepsis, which is an overwhelming infection, encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the, of the brain, and other conditions that require hospitalization. So far, this is not sounding good, is it? Um, but people who are at higher risk of severe disease, just like any virus, are people who are immunocompromised. So people who have HIV or um, leukemia, lymphoma, any generalized malignancy, for example, um, solid organ transplantation, 
uh, if you're having therapy with alkylating agents or radiation or tumor necrosis, high-dose corticosteroids, if you're on high-dose corticosteroids. Um, pediatric patients, for example, especially patients under the age of eight years um, of age. Pregnant um, people or breastfeeding women or those who have other complications like a secondary bacterial skin infection or gastroenteritis with severe nausea or vomiting or diarrhea, dehydration kind of thing, pneumonias, thinking, speaking of my own chest condition, <laughs> um, or other comorbidities. And also people with monkeypox virus aberrant infections that include its accidental implantation in the eyes or the mouth or other anatomical areas where the virus infection might constitute a special hazard, for example, in the genitalia or the anus. So those are the people who definitely need treatment. And so there's no specific treatment approved for monkeypox virus infections, although I know that some nurses who have been exposed are being offered the smallpox vaccine. It depends on the, the uh, type of exposure or the um, extent is the word I'm looking for of the exposure. But although there's no specific treatment approved for monkeypox, there are antivirals that have been developed for patients with smallpox may be beneficial for some patients. And so there's something called TPOX. It's an antiviral medication that is approved by the FDA for the treatment of human smallpox disease in adults and pediatrics patients um, weighing at least three kilos. So it is, it is for babies, but um, a certain weight they have to be. Um, also, Vistide or Cytofovir, it's an antiviral medication also approved by the FDA. That's for the treatment of cytomegalovirus or CMV um, in patients with acquired immunodeficiency syndrome or AIDS. Um, and also, there is Vaccinia Immunoglobulin Intravenous, VIGIV, VIGIV, and that's also licensed by the FDA for the treatment of complications due to Vaccinia vaccination, including eczema vaccinatum, progressive vaccinia, severe generalized vaccinia, and vaccinia infections in individuals who have skin conditions. Um, there's another antiviral medication that's called Tembexa, and that's also for the treatment of human smallpox disease as well. Um, best medication, of course, is prevention. Um, and, and so that's why public health awareness campaigns are so critically important. Although the last time we did that, it was so politicized that people just decided not to listen. Um, and so, you know, I, again, you can do all the educating that you want on, and people may or may not listen or think that they are not at risk, but there are certain groups who are at higher risk. It, um, it appears there are certain groups of people who, um, are at greater risk than others, but it is pointed out that anybody can actually contract monkeypox. It is not um, strictly for individuals uh, in the gay community. It is, um, it's also for men who have sex with men as well. And basically anybody is at risk for contracting um, monkeypox, as I said. So, um, and you know, I think we have like 15 times the amount of cases that we had a week ago in Canada. And so it is highly transmissible and it can, sounds like it's going to spread fast. So I would be extremely careful. We're going to go to a very sensitive subject, uh, domestic violence or intimate partner violence in this next segment. And if you are experiencing domestic violence, the number to call is 800-799-7233. That's 800-799-7233. If this segment makes you uncomfortable at all, just giving you a little bit of a warning that I am going to be discussing the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp case. We do have a caller on the line, Evelyn from Winnipeg. Good evening, Evelyn. Hi, hi, Marie. Um, yeah, my my situation is I didn't really fill in the gaps as to what was going on between the two of them, but I do know that um, I do believe that Amber Heard got the short end of the stick with regards to this case. I think um, uh-huh. with with me personally, I've I've experienced that as well, where I couldn't press charges against uh, an, uh, a partner a partner who who domestically violent by violated me. However. 
because I shoved him first, there's there's a indication of, you know, possibly arresting both of us with regards right. to a situation like that. And I didn't know that at the time that happened. See, so you might want to put you put put a word out to the public as to how to handle yourself in a domestic situation because this was this was unheard of of me with regards to my situation now with amber um i i i'm just i'm baffled behind the behind the scenes can you can you fill me in on exactly what the case was all about there's just so much i'm not sure that i could do it in eight or nine minutes but i'll try but i just have a quick question for you evelyn did you say you shoved your partner first yeah yes it's, yes, I did because he was. Um, we we were both men, we both have a mental illness. He's got an unmedicated schizophrenia, and I've got bipolar disorder. And what he was doing was he was he was mocking my illness and stuff like this. And he pushed me he pushed me to the brink where I shoved him. I see, I see. And then did it continue into more violence from there? Yes, he he ended up throwing my phone at me, and it almost hit me in the head. I wanted to mm-hmm. call nine one one. I wanted to call 911 to put an end to our, our riff. And what happened was he ended up throwing me against a wall where I could have easily broken my back before he left my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you decided not to press charges because, well, because, because you had the hit fact him. That I could have, e- I could have right. easily been arrested at the, on the spot. Right. Because I, right. Admitted, that... I admitted to shoving him. Yeah. Yeah, and that certainly does happen. And, in fact, um, very you know, commonly, especially in certain um, couples. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Evelyn, for sharing your story. Oh, oh, you're, you're welcome. It was, it was tough. It's been a couple of years since I've seen him. So, but the the situation is it does happen. It does happen when things get a a little escalated. That's good. Yeah. I'm glad you haven't seen him in a couple of years. I suggest not seeing him for the rest of your life. (laughs) Perhaps. Hopefully not. Yeah. I don't think it was a good match. Well, the situation with Amber, like, you know, the, it, it just like it dawns on me the fact that okay, even even famous couples can have their moments, you know. But this oh. has gotten a little too far. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It, yeah, it does not discriminate. Absolutely, no, no, it doesn't. Oh. But th- thank you, Maureen, for letting me call. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you for the call, okay. Evelyn. You're welcome. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye. All right. This week, a panel of five men and two women found that Amber Heard defamed Johnny Depp in an op-ed for the Washington Post in December of 2018 by referring to herself as representing domestic abuse by stating that she witnessed how institutions protect men accused of abuse by stating that she witnessed how institutions protect men accused of abuse and by tweeting a link to the online version of the op-ed which carried the headline, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. Well, nothing is going to change after that trial. I mean, that trial was was a circus, Um, but the outcome was the outcome, and and some would say justice was served. But others, especially domestic violence advocates, have spoken widely of the chilling effects of the case, that victims may conclude from these proceedings that they will be disbelieved, harassed, shamed, and ostracized if they press charges or share their experiences. And... You know, it's so difficult for women to speak up about male violence against women. But tonight, I don't want to talk about that part. I want to talk about female violence against men, because that happens as well. One statistic said that one in every three women has experienced intimate partner violence, and one in every four men have experienced the same. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, identifies four types of intimate partner violence. Physical violence, sexual violence, stalking, and psychological aggression. A lot of people experience control, psychological control. That would probably fall under that psychological aggression. But also, abuse can be verbal, and it can be emotional as well, and can be very, very difficult to uh, describe, to talk about. There's so much shame. There's so much stigma associated with it. Psychological violence is estimated to be the most common form of intimate partner violence. It's that gaslighting. It's that verbal abuse, financial control. Men who are being abused can always reach out to their local domestic violence shelter, even if it's a women's only shelter, or they can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-SAFE. It's just important to raise this without going into the 
all of the bits of the trial, but I would like to do that in an upcoming show. This week I was just not in any shape to to find any trial lawyers out there that could discuss this with me or actually explain it all to me. Um, but I would like to do that uh, in the next couple of weeks. And I have a few lawyers that have been on the show in the past, and um, I will be reaching out to them because I think it was a very, very interesting trial. There is a lot that went on here. Um, but the jury was not swayed by Amber Heard. It was said that uh, she was acting, that there was tearless crying, um, that, uh, you know, it, it is interesting. I find that it's five men and two women um, on this, but I wanted to say that uh, women can abuse men as well. That certainly can happen. That is not um, a, a fallacy by any stretch of the imagination. But it's, it's a, you know, when a man is the victim of domestic violence and they decide to tell somebody, it's really an act of courage because he's more than likely to hear, come on, be a man, that can't have happened, or you're lying. But yes, men are victims of domestic abuse. And according to the Center for Disease Control's National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, one in seven men reported experiencing severe physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime. Severe physical violence includes being hit with a fist or something hard, being kicked, hurt by pulling hair, slammed against something, being choked, suffocated, beaten, burned on purpose, or threatened with a knife or a gun. And many, many women have long fought to be believed when they report abuse, but men also face a similar fight. And they also experience the same biases and prejudices. And it, it, it's almost unbelievable that a, a woman who, women who typically aren't, um, you know, as physically muscular and uh, size-wise as well, um, you know, it's hard to believe that women are actually capable of battering a man, especially a man who is bigger and stronger than they are. But more than 200 studies have confirmed that in violent relationships, women are as likely as men to be the aggressors. And there is a study that was done by the National Institute of Justice and one by the CDC, both of which found that about 40% of those reporting serious assaults by a current or former partner in the past year were men and most of their attackers were women. There are systemic biases against men as well as women. And research that has been reported in the journal Partner Abuse revealed these three things. When police, and Evelyn spoke a little bit about this, when police are called for a domestic dispute, the arrest of both parties is more likely in same-sex couples than in heterosexual couples. Protective orders, so restraining orders, which Amber Heard had in the past against Johnny Depp, that didn't sway the jury either, are far more likely, so those protective orders or restraining orders are far more likely to be granted to women than they are to men. And mock juries are more likely to assign blame to male perpetrators in contrast to female perpetrators, even when presented with identical scenarios. So there is a bias against men there. And there are even more biases that come into play if the victim is in the LGBTQIS community. And so what is to be done about male violence? First of all, talking about it, which is why I've decided to talk about it on the show tonight. And it's not that I have not talked about male violence against women. I've certainly talked about that. I, I actually understand that better from my patients. Um, and also from, I had a very terrible experience at, at work um, once, and it was a, it was uh, just the most bizarre situation. Anyway, I won't even go into it. Um, it was a, 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 a little bit, I will. Uh, it was a gay man who was in the closet. He was about 40 years of age, and he abused the women in the office, the women who were working at this particular pseudoscience company. Um, and there were a number of women that he psychologically and verbally and emotionally abused. And I, I just knew it was dead wrong. It was totally wrong. And, and so I 
started documenting, which I think is a very important thing for anybody who is being abused. Um, if you can document it with your phone, if you can document it the date and the time and what happened and who might have been there, uh, it's very important. So I, I know, <clears throat> and more so from my patients as well, I've seen more women who have experienced um, intimate partner violence from a man than the other way around, but, but I see more women in my clinical practice anyway. So, but we have to take this issue seriously. And it's domestic violence is not just a women's issue. And there are so many men who are victims. It's happening all around us. We can't close our eyes to it any longer. There is emergency housing assistance for men, but sometimes it can be more difficult for them to access. Um, you know, men need to heal from this as well after they get out of a relationship like that. But men, as well as women, can ed benefit from education, training, therapy, job assistance, supportive relationships. The thing is, oftentimes people grow up with violence in their home and they think it's normal. And But it's anything but normal. So it's, it's very important to talk about it, get some help. Um, about it. Don't live in secrecy or shame. Tell somebody who is supportive and understanding. Research it because it is very real. But um, what happened in the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp situation where he had a very similar history of, as to what she described. It was substance use and abuse as well that often uh, goes along with violence in a relationship and it can go along with verbal and emotional violence and also physical and psychological aggression. So there was lots there, but uh, to the world, he was exonerated. And once again, it's going to make it that much more difficult for women to have their stories believed because um, it doesn't bode well, the entire situation. Here is a very downer text for me. <laughs> I'm feeling like I'm on the mend, <laughs> but uh, it says, this is from Bill. Thanks, Bill. Bill, I hope you're feeling better. Dear Maureen, I recently had bacterial pneumonia that led into Legionella. It was the most horrible thing I've ever had. was in the hospital for a week, then two weeks to recover. It's been a few weeks and I'm still exhausted. I'm very sorry to hear that. I hope that's not my fate. <laughs> anyway, I'm thinking I'm getting better. But that just could be, uh, I tend to be an optimistic type. And also, I'm wanting to get better. So I'm hoping that I'm getting better. But there was a question as to whether or not I had pneumonia. Uh, so hopefully I do not. Hopefully the antibiotics are working the way that they should. Anyway, thanks so much for your text. Um, anyway... Sometimes I can't understand some of your text messages, so please be a little bit clearer. Anyhow, um, so I'm not going to read them because especially tonight when I don't feel 150%, okay? Um, so I don't want to mess them up even more. But, you know, I had an opportunity to experience the American healthcare system because I, I was traveling when I got sick. And so I did, had a virtual appointment with a physician. Um, you know, I was lucky. I mean, you know, I, I offered to pay, but he wouldn't take any money from me. I, I mean, I, I've worked with the guy before and it was a virtual um, uh, clinic, virtual appointment, which I was so grateful for because I didn't feel like going anywhere. Uh, Dr. Paul Heinzelman, and a uh, very well-known physician in the U.S. And, and he does a lot of work in the film industry as well. And, um, and so he wouldn't charge me, number one. And that was so nice of him, but I really was insisting on paying. Um, but then he ordered a, some meds for me, antibiotics, some inhalants, a cough suppressant. And um, when I called the pharmacist and they asked me if I had insurance, which I do and don't, um, I... You know, I have to submit my receipt, so I do have insurance. But I, they wanted me to give them the insurance number, and I said, "No, I'll just pay cash, and then I'll get reimbursed for it." I'm not even going to get into microdosing. Maybe later. Um, and the pharmacist actually asked me if I really wanted to pick up these meds 
because they were so expensive. And I said, well, how much are they? And they turned out to be $426. And I thought, well, I kind of want to live. So yeah, I'll pick them up. But it made me think of people who might have difficulty uh, affording those. And, and that's probably a common question that, that families and parents are asked, you know, do you actually want these medications? And they had said to me, um, we're trying to find the generic of a particular one. And I said, forget it. Don't go with generic. I, I like the trade names, <laughs> medications. And um, they're like, okay, but I paid for that. Um, but anyway, maybe in the future in the US, I might go with the generic. But um, quickly, I just want to talk about microdosing psychedelics. It's the practice of consuming very low sub hallucinogenic doses of a psychedelic substance like LSD or psilocybin containing mushrooms. And microdosing has grown in popularity, yet the scientific literature contains minimal research on the practice. But I did find um, a, a research study, The Psychedelic Microdosing Benefits and Challenges, an empirical codebook. And the most frequently reported codes were improved mood, 12.8% experienced that, improved focus, 10%, creativity, 9.4%, and improved energy, 7.6% of people. So um, a lot of people are actually taking, they're not just um, utilizing LSD and psilocybin containing mushrooms, they're also using antidepressants and ADHD medications, and they're just taking small doses once or twice a week to treat their anxiety or their depression. And they're finding that that has been, has proved beneficial for them. In, in practice, only about a third of people who microdose carefully measure the amount of psychedelic they're taking. Most just take enough to begin feeling some effects. I'm not sure I would advise this. It does require some trial and error, um, especially if you're eating mushrooms, which can vary in psilocybin concentration, of course. But, um, you know, there, there definitely needs to be more research into the mental health benefits of full doses of psychedelics, which is ongoing and promising. And, and also um, some other, other research needs to be done in terms of, um, you know, treating um, depression and anxiety with smaller doses and, and what are the, the risks and benefits to that. Anyway, another subject we'll likely be diving into through the summer months. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Imagine living with painful lumps that congregate in the folds of your skin, under your armpits, and groin area. Now imagine you've seen up to 10 doctors over several years, and they have absolutely no idea what you are living with. There's a good chance you're living with hydrogenitis superativa or HS. And HS is a condition that impacts an estimated 1 million Canadians. Dr. Jaggi Rao is a dermatologist in Edmonton, Alberta, and he joins me on the line to talk about this very debilitating condition. Good evening, Dr. Jao. Dr. Rao. Good evening, Maureen. Dr. Rao. Dr. Jaggi Rao. Good evening to you. Uh, good evening. I'm not myself tonight. I am not 100%. <laughs> I have a slight fever. No, no problem. <laughs> You can hear my chest. <laughs> I'm wheezing, but I'm here. <laughs> anyway. No problem. No, not at all. All right. Thank you. Um, so, t- wow, this sounds just like a horrific condition, and, and not to mention the frustration that many patients must experience in trying to get the correct diagnosis. What exactly is HS? Well, HS, as you mentioned, it stands for hydradenitis separativa. And it's a condition whereby people get painful lumps underneath their skin. And usually it's in the skin folds where the skin rubs against the skin. So, for mm-hmm. example, the groin and the inner gluteal cleft between uh, the, the bum. And you also get it under the arms, sometimes even under the breast. And rarely you can get it in other areas as well, such as the neck. And some people even get it on the trunk as well. But it's very, very painful. And unfortunately, it's quite chronic. It goes on for several, several years. That's awful. And what is the cause of HS? Well, you know, it's believed to be microscopic in its cause, and it has to do with the immune system. And there's nothing wrong with the immune system in terms of a deficiency. It's just that the immune system is believed to target two different things. One of them is perhaps uh, hair follicles that are really small and microscopic in the area. And the other may be, in fact, different types of glands. So we're talking different types of sweat glands called apocrine glands were believed to be also the target of the immune attack. 
Wow. And um, and does it start slow? And do people notice maybe a boil under their armpit or um, behind yeah, the knee or right. something? Yeah, typically it starts out slow and then sometimes it can just quite rage. So it, typically people will have more than two of these boils at a given time in any of mm-hmm. these regions. And some people have several more. And so are these, uh, you know, is this condition often misdiagnosed? Is that what, is that why it takes an estimated seven years yes. to be properly diagnosed? Yeah, I think that's, that's part of it. I mean, the other thing is because of its location, it, people often don't want to present with it. It's, it's one of those things you don't talk about at parties and people just silently suffer from it. But uh, mm-hmm. in fact, it, it, even if when they do present to doctors, often doctors haven't seen it or they're not aware of it. And that has changed, of course, over the last year or two. But prior to that, yes, it was definitely true that, that they just didn't know what it was. Right. And so people, as you say, uh, there's, there's a stigma associated with it. People are embarrassed um, about these boils that um, appear, it sounds like, all over their body or can happen anywhere. And, and they're also, yeah. to boot, they're painful, which sounds dreadful. Very, extremely painful. And, you know, it, it of course, can, can affect uh, intimacy, but, but also their self-worth. So a lot of people who have this suffer from pain, but also self-esteem issues. I mean, it just sounds absolutely awful. And and what ages do, does this generally happen? And, what, and, and it, does it affect yeah. men more than women or women more than men? That, that's right. Yeah, it, I think it affects more, more women than men. But, you know, if you look at it, we, we see both genders uh, affected mm-hmm. quite highly. And usually it starts in our teenagehood. And, and then, uh, of course, as time goes by, it can get a little bit more prevalent. But uh, you can expect to see it around adolescence and then upwards. Oh, Wow. And, and of course, it must lead to anxiety and depression and a, another whole host of self-esteem issues as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And even loss of work, you know, because of infections and, and the treatments. And sometimes the treatments can even be surgical. And the surgical treatments require debilitation and healing. Uh, I mean, it, it just sounds absolutely awful. So it's not only they're not only painful lumps, but they're also infectious lumps. And how do they know? Yes that the lumps are infected? Well, well, often there's uh, excessive pain and redness, and, and uh, often they will even get a little bit purulent, so you'll get pus that comes out of it. In fact, the name separativa means to issue pus. So in, mm-hmm. in worst-case scenarios, you can often get that in sinus tracts and, and boils, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and so when they go to the doctor, typically the doctor hasn't seen it before. It, is it misdiagnosed, most likely, or...? Um, is yeah. it the doctor, you know, doing a differential diagnosis? Are they taking a guess, taking a stab at it? That, that's right. Yeah. If they haven't been taught it in school, then, then probably they're going to be taking a guess. And there's other things that it could be similar to, for example, folliculitis, which is a, an inflammation of the hair follicles in the area, can often result in boils as well. But in this particular one, the trick is if you have more than two boils in any one of those areas, so typically it'll be the groin between the, the bum crack and uh, under the arms or, or under the breast. Then we can make the, the diagnosis in about 99% of cases. Oh, wow. So people need to have two boils in two different areas on their body for it to... That's right. Yeah, well, two boils in, in any, any one of those areas. But if you have more than one, yes, that, that kind of solidifies it. Right, right. And, and are there, are there other um, criteria for diagnosis as well? Yeah, there are. For, for example, uh, there's something called sinus tracts. So these are little tunnels that, that bridge two areas of opening. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that's more of a medical sign. It's hard for patients maybe to, to recognize that, although you might if, uh, if you had a lot of the pus and you followed it through. But uh, mm-hmm. a good dermatologist would be able to, to take that. There's a few other minor criteria, but the major one is the two boils in a given area. Right. And so treatment. So first of all, it takes seven to seven years on average for somebody to be diagnosed. People might see upwards of 10 doctors before they're diagnosed. Who's the best doctor or what type of doctor is the best doctor to diagnose this? Is this a dermatologist like yourself? I guess it always was uh, dermatology because we we see, you know, all everything that's uh, skin related. But, you know, now because Mm -hmm. of education and, and promotion and a lot of that has to do with the great treatments that we have now and the companies that have created that have helped to educate. Uh, I think mm-hmm. even family doctors are able to make the diagnosis and sometimes even pharmacists can make mm-hmm. the diagnosis. Wow. 
um, next thing you know, to be nurses. Kidding. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know what? For sure. And, and, and hopefully patients as well. Yes, exactly. Um, so there's no cure for HS, um, I understand. No, but no. There's how no is it managed? There are some things. Yeah, there's a few mm-hmm. things that can make it better. So the way I, I kind of think of management is non-medical versus medical management. So mm-hmm. even things that, that uh, you know, would help to reduce skin against skin contact. So, of course, weight loss and, you know, just uh, reduction of friction. Th- those kind of things will certainly help. Uh, but even despite that, people will often have this tendency. So the, ultimately what we want to do is try to uh, take care of any symptoms. So the pain as well as uh, prevent infection, sometimes that's antibiotics and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that's really just managing the, the uh, symptoms of it, you know, and, and not really getting to the heart of it. Nowadays, we have amazing treatments that get to the heart of it that actually reduce that part of the immune system that is um, targeting those different mm-hmm. tissues like the hair follicles. And so and a good example is a biologic agent. So a biologic oh, yeah. agent is essentially an antibody that we inject into the, into the body. Very, very mm-hmm. safe, little to no side effects. And it actually reduces only that part of the immune system that's hyper-elevated and sensitive. And as a result, we've been able to clear this in many cases. And uh, it, at the very least, we can help to reduce the symptoms over a long period of time in a safe way. Wow, that is amazing. Um, yeah. Now, is this, are, are the biologics, are they, they're fairly, are they accessible for patients? Are they expensive? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, so they are expensive, but, you know, usually insurance plans will cover it if you meet certain criteria. So one of the criteria is that you do have to have HS diagnosed by a dermatologist. So a dermatologist has to give you the blessing. And that makes uh-huh. sense because they're, they're experts in the skin and they're specialists. Right. So if your family doctor can refer you to a dermatologist and they, they happen to diagnose you, that's a big step. The other thing is most insurance companies will cover this completely free for the uh, individual if they've tried and failed other things. For example, there's certain antibiotics like doxycycline. And if you're uh-huh. on enough of that for enough of a duration, that uh, will help you for sure. But if it doesn't clear you and you still have this disease, then you might qualify for a biologic therapy free of charge. Right. So there's huge hope on the horizon for people with this condition, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, very much so. And there's actually newer biologic therapies that are coming out that uh, are just getting better and better, not, not only in terms of the effect but also frequency of administration. So right now Mm -hmm. you just have to inject. uh, It's patients that self-inject, kind of like insulin. It doesn't Mm -hmm. hurt at all. And and, uh, the the one that first came out was called Humira. So H-U-M-I-R-A. People might want to ask their doctor about that. And then Mm -hmm. now there's other agents that are very similar, what we call them biosimilars to Humira. And there will be new ones in the pipe. That's fantastic. And so how uh, is it a daily injection for these folks or...? No, no, it's not a daily injection, but uh, right now Humira usually would be twice a week to sometimes okay. even once a week. And for some people, we even do it uh, less frequent than that, but it, it would depend on, on the um, extent of the, the problem. And then how um, long does it take for a patient to see results, would you say, on average? Yeah, it, it varies. I mean, the sooner they start, the, the quicker they'll see results. But usually it'll be within a few weeks, they'll start to notice the improvement. And, and usually we, we follow them up every 8 to 12 weeks, and we see significant mm-hmm. improvement at the follow-up point. It's just remarkable. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. Um, you mentioned weight loss for some people. Is it, is it Do people gain weight as a result of the condition because they are stressed and distressed and maybe staying home and not going to work and not going out. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I, I think that it, it does, um, th- those kind of factors would contribute to the weight, but I think it's a vicious cycle. Initially, people who have uh, skin rubbing against skin will, mm-hmm. will find that the boils um, t- tend to be an issue because of the friction. It probably mm-hmm. heightens the immune sensitivity to it, right? So if you have skin rubbing against skin, then the immune system will usually come to the area and they'll target ah. the uh, microscopic uh, elements a little bit quicker. So if you can reduce the weight in general, we find that the symptoms become a little bit less. And, and so are people who are, uh, have a bit of weight on them, are they a little bit more likely or more prone yes. to HS? Yeah, that is, they are. That's one of the risk factors. Smoking also is a risk factor for reasons unknown. And, and we talked about uh, female gender for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe the hormones have something to do with that. We're not really quite sure. 
maybe even body temperature as well. So if you're if you're hotter, if you're running a little bit hot, that might have something to do with it. So we, we're only kind of skimming the surface in terms of causes, but we do know right. it's the immune system. And if your immune system is not bad, if in fact it's good, if not mm-hmm. a little bit better than good, then sometimes you'll, you'll get this condition more frequently. Right. How about warmer climates um, where people might sweat a bit more? Yeah, I, I believe that's right. Yeah, it hasn't been, um, I haven't seen that specifically, but I, I believe that to be the case. But, but, you know, mm-hmm. we do see it even in our, our colder environments here in Canada. We see a lot of HS. Right. So a million Canadians uh, experience uh, HS. That's right. And so, yeah, I mean, quite the, a lot. It is. And the cost of their lives and their relationships and their jobs. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's yeah. just, I, I imagine it would be tremendously debilitating. And you mentioned the surgery as well. Um, so some people yeah, that's actually. Right. Yeah. Tell me a little yeah. bit more about yeah. that. So surgery is remarkable, actually. And we're not talking about a major surgery. Like earlier on, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, they would even advocate cutting out some of those glands. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and you know, you do that, and that, that causes debilitation in and of itself, right, with scarring and right. so forth. Nowadays, um, there, there's actually better procedures that are not as aggressive. There's something called a de-roofing procedure, where if you see a skilled doctor who has that ability to do that, they'll just freeze the tissue so there's no pain, and then make a small incision to release the pressure of those boils and just clean it out. And when you do that, you just allow it to heal by itself. It's absolutely right. remarkable. It, it reduces the pressure and the pain associated with it and eradicates that particular boil. So the standard of care now, the best care you can do is the de-roofing procedure plus the biologic for prevention. It, yeah. It's remarkable. Works so that's, so well. That's fantastic. I was going to say, what would you say to somebody out there who might be suffering with HS? Oh, I would say, you know, just like many conditions, now is the best time to ever have this condition because there's so many things that we know about it and we know how to treat it now. And and uh, this is this is great. There's many more things on the horizon. Uh huh. Uh huh. And so I have I, uh, somebody obviously late to the program. They texted, and what is HS? <laughs> How would you describe it, Doug? <laughs> yeah, just so, briefly. So, no, no, that's that's okay, and then we don't mind repeating yeah. it because we, we definitely want everybody to know. So HS mm-hmm. stands for hydradenitis suppurativa, and so the word hydradenitis means inflammation of the glands, and suppurativa means pus generating. And HS is basically a pus generating condition where people get boils under their skin, particularly in areas where skin rubs against skin. So we're talking about the, the groin and other folds, such as the bum crack and sometimes even under the arms and under the breasts. Well, fantastic, Dr. Rao. I really appreciate you coming on the program to educate the listeners about HS. Oh, my and- pleasure. And, and you know what? Uh, one more thing, Maureen. If anybody yeah. uh, wants more information, we're, we're so pleased. we got a great patient group that I'm oh, an advocate for and a lot of other dermatologists. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. hsheroes.ca. So HS, Hydradenitis yep. Operativa, Heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, dot C-A. And I'm very pleased that, that we have uh, people who've taken time and patients who've taken time to create this. And I fully support it along with other dermatologists. That is fantastic. And that is just such a great resource, hsheroes.ca. And uh, so I was going to ask you for further information, where can the listeners go? But um, thank you for yeah. providing that website. I really appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the program to talk about this. My pleasure, Marie. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. (laughs) All the best. All right. Same to you. you. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the last half hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. If you uh, have any questions or comments to make, the number to call or text is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877- 399-9898. Uh, it gave you a little prelude to what I was going to discuss in this segment. And um, I had an email from a woman who is fighting mad. Anyway, dear Maureen, and here it goes. Here, dear Maureen, I know you deal with this all the time, but most people think it's women who have low libido. Not so in my case, exclamation point times three. I have plenty of that PEA you talk about in your TEDx talk. I am in a sexless marriage and I am furious about it. I'm almost 63, hardly old. My new OBGYN doctor, upon examination, 
told me that I'm pretty much atrophied down there, all dried up. Asked me if I was not having sex. I am so angry at my husband, expletive angry at my husband. Yes, there are things I could do to rejuvenate, but I shouldn't be here on the account of someone else. I always had a very active sex life. I'm not sure how to get over this. I'm not sure how how I got into this. He says he wants sex now. Been so long. I don't even look at him like that anymore. Not interested and would have to start working on rejuvenation first. Frankly, expletive him. (laughs) So angry. I don't know what to do. He killed my womanhood. Missing a massive part of pleasure in my life because of him. I'm not laughing at the email. I'm just laughing at the way it was written. Um, This is an angry woman. I will tell you that. And also it's a woman who's playing the victim a little bit. Nobody can kill your womanhood. And just to address a few of these things, absolutely correct. Most people think that it's women who have low sexual desire, but actually men can experience low sexual desire as well. About 38.7% of women experience low sexual desire and about 19% of men experience it as well. So it's, it's actually much harder on a woman when the man in her life experiences low sexual desire because, you know, the, uh, wisdom of the day is that all men want is sex. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And it's certainly not, not the case of the woman who sent me this email. And so women are like, if all men want is sex all the time and you don't want me, like what is wrong with me? So you can sort of understand her anger and frustration uh, about that as well. But then it also makes me think, you know, does does this person have a tendency to be this angry and, and maybe versus understanding and perhaps that he could be turned off by her anger controlling. I mean, I am certainly extrapolating here, speculating, but you know, there's a lot of issues that can be the cause of a sexless marriage. People don't realize just how many issues there can be. And I'm going to talk about another case study right after this one, um, which, you know, where I unearthed a number of um, reasons for low sexual desire in the relationship, even though he said everything was absolutely perfect, as people usually do, because they're in denial. But I also wanted to talk about this new OBGYN upon examination, telling this woman that she's pretty much atrophied down there, and then asking her if she was sexually active. Maybe she was asking her because she was thinking, if you are, it must be very painful, because vaginal dryness occurs as women enter the menopausal years. And there's decreased estrogen receptors in the urogenital tract. And it's important to replace that estrogen either with a personal moisturizer like FEM or with uh, localized estrogen therapy like Estragine and Premarin cream. Although I think the Premarin cream is um, on low supply these days. They're having supply chain issues. But so you can do hormone free or hormone one, but it was probably more like, are you sexually active? Because it would be pretty painful. Also, women are prone to urinary tract infections when they have dry, vaginal dryness. It's called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And so it's not because she's not having sex that she's having vaginal atrophy or genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So that's one thing to um, you know clarify, which I actually did uh, with this woman. But this particular woman was like, why should I even bother because, um, you know, if he's not going to have sex with me anyway, why would I bother? And so, but it's not just about somebody having sex with you or not. It's also about your bladder health and vaginal health and prevention of infection. So it's very important that uh, you get that treated and it's actually lifelong treatment. But somebody who's so angry, um, and I thought that they, she said that they had gone to, and that might have been in the follow-up email, that she had gone to um, marriage counselors for a while um, with him. And um, anyway, th- but that didn't work. And often it doesn't because they never address the low sexual desire and the reasons for the low sexual desire, which can be plenty. Um, 
so I wanted to talk to you. Uh, anyway, my point here of this email is that it's not just women who experience low sexual desire. It's also men who can experience low sexual desire. And it's incredibly painful in either situation, but um, seems to be a little bit more painful for um, women because of that conventional wisdom that all men want is sex, but not my man. Why not? And so women feel badly about themselves and then they start to get low self-esteem and, and then they may become anxious and depressed and lonely and isolated and feel like they're not good enough and, um, and go down those pathways. So it's important to address the reason for low sexual desire. Um, so I had another patient as well. I'm seeing most patients virtually these days. And another patient who was in, he said um, that he Googled no sex wife and my name came up anyway. <laughs> um, and so he had viewed my TEDx talk and other videos that I had done on the subject. And he'd been in a, and he had not had sex with his wife for six years. And he didn't realize the definition, which is sex less than 10 times a year. And so he realized he'd been in a sexless marriage longer than he'd actually realized. Um, so he felt badly about that. But, you know, they had no financial problems. They had three kids. Everything seemed fine. They didn't argue. They went out together. Um, but after unearthing a few more things through a sexual health assessment, uh, there were a number of issues that this couple was experiencing. And one of them was chronic busyness. And that's so common today where it's oftentimes the woman who is, you know, volunteering and um, helping with their parents and doing, you know, dealing with the children, the lion's share of the housework and the kids and, and helping at the school and maybe working outside of the home. And uh, this particular woman was working and traveling and so was incredibly busy and just didn't really manage any downtime or, or time together. Um, and when she was having downtime, she was exhausted. So there was fatigue is another contributing factor to low sexual desire. And also the woman had gained about 25 pounds in the last six years, conveniently enough. Um, and, you know, that led to body image issues as well, um, which she had not discussed with her husband. And then the other aspect was during the perimenopausal years, um, which were in, you know, 30, late 30s, 40s for women. And this woman was about right around 50, give or take a year or two. And um, she was experiencing vaginal dryness. And so the sex was painful as well. And she wasn't sure if there was something wrong with her. She was worried. Um, she didn't have time to deal with a medical condition. She said, of course, a lot of people think it's cancer, um, especially when they don't investigate it. So, um, uh, you know, there were a number of issues here that, that actually needed to be addressed. And then when you fall out of the habit, you know, it takes you a little while to get back into it uh, and get, you know, doing it again. Um, and so it was just easier to avoid it. Uh, she wanted to, of course, they wanted to remain married together, but he felt that he couldn't go on, you know, for another 30 years. He was around the same age as well. He might've been like 47. Anyway, um, looking at the next 30, 35 years of a sexless marriage. And so he really, really was desperate uh, to seek the treatment. So it's important to get treatment for this. Um, and of course, there's also the condition called hypoactive sexual desire disorder, HSDD. And that um, can actually... Um, you know, that's a medical condition and, and it affects about 12% of the 40 of the near 40% of women who have it. And also men can have HSDD as well. And it's really being devoid of any sexual thoughts at all. Uh, not thinking about sex, never, ever thinking about it and, and actually having distress about it. And so there are treatments for that as well. So it's important again, to get that sexual health assessment from somebody who is trained in this area and understands this area. And it's not somebody who's going to tell you to go to a cabin on a lake or drink some wine or some of the other, you know, nebulous advice that a lot of therapists will give to people. Uh, you're never actually going to rekindle the flame. 
uh, by doing those things if you don't address the myriad of issues that can contribute to a sexless marriage. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.